This is labor, 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 Welcome to Labour Days, a podcast about trade union issues and labour history. I'm Ed, alongside, as usual, Ellie and Daniel, and our producer, Liam. This is our sixth episode. McDonald's workers at two stores, one in Crayford, South East London, and one in Cambridge, recently voted by a 95% majority for strikes over pay, union recognition, and other issues. This will be the first official strike of McDonald's workers in UK history. The first strike day is currently set for Monday the 4th of September. We're marking the Muck strike by interviewing Steve, a McDonald's worker and union activist in the Cambridge store, and discussing the issues his interview raises. In true Labour Day style, we're also looking back to a historical strike in a similar industry, so I'll be talking later about the 1912 New York waiters strike and discussing what we can learn from it. Along the way, we might also be mentioning more recent fast food workers' struggles, such as the Super Size My Pay campaign in New Zealand in 2006-7, and the ongoing Fight for 15 movement in America. But let's kick off by hearing from Steve, who spoke to Daniel about what the McDonald's strike is all about. Do you want to start just by telling us um, uh, exactly what the dispute's about? What are the demands? Okay, um, the main demands, um, main demands are, of course, are £10 an hour minimum wage. We want our union to be able to speak on our behalf as a collective voice for all the workers. But yeah, that's the, 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 the main two demands. And then we've got um, internal grievance procedures are very poor as well. When we've brought up things to the management in the past, and either nothing's been done. It's been ignored. We've, uh, we, we want an end to what we believe is uh, union victimisation, people losing hours and, and things like that. Um, I know that affects the Crayford store more than it does mine, I believe, uh, but we have seen a little bit of that. Um, and we're, we're also asking for our breaks to be given and uh, an end to sexual harassment, which we, we, we feel sometimes is almost a culture of it. Because um, it, it happens, all female mums of staff have experienced it at some moment in time. Um, um, so yeah, that, that, they're on me demands anyway. So, all right, so that, those are the, the demands of the dispute. Um, uh, you've already kind of answered this question somewhat um, in explaining that, but could you just talk a bit kind of generally about what it's like to work at McDonald's, um, what are the conditions like in the workplace? Um, you've already mentioned the low pay, the, the, the lack of union recognition and sexual harassment as three kind of uh, significant workplace issues, but are there are there other issues that that workers feel particularly animated about, and um, what what are the kind of what's the sort of general working environment like? Well, there there are main issues, but I'll, I'll give you some examples. I mean, um, we've had uh, in my store, we had, where there was a young man. Uh, he's just left school. He's had a, a very troubled upbringing. Uh, he doesn't get on well with his parents. Like he. He has a very, very volatile relationship with them, um, and he, because he, he doesn't, he's only six, seventeen. He gets like four thirty-five an hour or something stupid, uh, so he can't afford anywhere to live. Uh, and he's been sofa surfing between mates' houses, between couches, uh, and he's, he's at the moment he's living in a broken-down car. Um, that's that's somebody we work with because of his age. I mean, he, he just can't afford to live at all, uh, especially with you know hours going up and down because we have no guarantee of hours. Um, his hours fluctuate every week. <laughs> um, some people are quite lucky, we've got quite steady hours, but his are really bad. Uh, in, in Crawford, there was a, a young woman there, uh, well, a woman there that worked on the, 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 the lobby area, you know, cleaning the tables and stuff, and she, she gets, uh, like, daily harassment from a, the same group of kids. Uh, she's brought it to the manager's attention. They just don't care. Um, one day, she'd had enough of it. Um, she spoke up against these kids, spoke them back to them, uh, and the manager uh, dragged her into the office, shouted at her, and then forced her to sign a resignation letter. Um, so that that was in uh, that was in Crawford. So like, it's not just it's not just the, the conditions of the workplace in terms of guaranteed hours and not having enough, not not making enough money, but it's also the the, the treatment you get from the managers as well. They just talk to you like shit, you know, they talk to you like dirt. They don't. They don't care if they're sold. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's very hard. So uh, it, the dispute initially has just started in two two restaurants in two stores. Um, what what are your plans or your aspirations for spreading it to other restaurants? Well, it, it's already spread in some respects. There's um, there's at least five stores now that are involved since we we started really pushing um, 
for building first strike. Uh, there's now five stores already involved who've not even hit the strike day. Well, I think this strike is hopefully going to show them the doctor's work because then it can be done uh, and then it needs to be done because you know, we can't continue living in these conditions. Um, and I think that, yeah, once, once strike days come, it's going to get massive. There's four McDonald's in the Cambridge area. Um, there's two within Cambridge itself and it's on the outskirts. Um, I'm uh, uh, one of them just out of town, but still in town. And then there's one in the city centre. Um, and I'm talking about who, who knows workers that are already there and they're trying to get to sit down and talk to them to try and talk to them about what we're doing. So... Yeah, hopefully it's going to spread, and not just of course, not just of course to McDonald's, but across the, the the board. You know, Eddie Burger King, all of them, all suffer the same thing. I mean, I mean, as you know, I'm from Scarborough, uh, and uh, I did a lot of work with KFC there, and yeah, there's some of the practices in fast food is just absolutely dreadful. Um, could you could you say a bit about how you uh, initially went about the process of um, organising in your workplace? Because there's a kind of orthodoxy that I think has prevailed in. Uh, well in society generally but in the trade union movement specifically for a while that these types of workplaces can't be organised um, your, your dispute uh, is obviously kind of exploding that so how, how did you go about it? Well I, I've only been working here for six weeks so it wasn't it was uh, it's been they, they were already organising when I got here he found out their issues and that's what we're going on we're finding out what makes a person angry uh, initially and then showing them that you know we, there is a, a, an opportunity to change that um, and sort of helping them understand how we can change it and how we can move forward uh, and then getting them to meet up with us uh, outside of work that's the most important thing you can't do this stuff I mean McDonald's is very busy all the time you can't don't have the opportunity to talk to people I think the main thing is we find out what their issue is because everybody's got an issue with them. and for many people it is low pay but other people have got spe lots more specific issues like sexual harassment and things like that I mean I'm a I'm a, I'm a male uh, and I don't I don't suffer sexual harassment so that wouldn't have even crossed my mind but you know by talking to a female member of staff I realised actually the sexual harassment rife in this workplace but I didn't know that from my perspective does that make sense? yeah absolutely so finding out what that person's issue is um, and then working from that because you often find that a lot of people share the same issues of course um, but you know unless you ask and find out what people's issues are what makes them angry we'll never know um, and in terms of union organisation specifically have you set up branches in the stores um, or are you linked into wider city-wide branches what's the setup? Um, well, for the moment, it's just we we have a <laughs> we have an organising committee, which is made up of a few people from each of the two restaurants that are, are currently uh, that are currently uh, involved. There's an union branch for the purposes of balloting, uh, but we haven't set up a union branch in order to uh, in order to participate in our own union structure, um, which is something we'll be looking forward looking to do uh, at the, the end of the year when we're <laughs> a little less busy. <laughs> it, it, you know, it's, um, so we can get take part in the wider wider debate within union and things like that all right so you just heard uh the first part of our interview with steve a mcdonald's worker and trade union activist in the baker's union uh currently involved in um, a strike of workers at two mcdonald's stores so we're just going to have a kind of discussion between um between ourselves about some of the issues that um steve's um interview raised um and i thought i might kick that off by by talking about um the kind of the issue of the demands of the strike and 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 what issues that's focused on um it seems to me that that this and and the pitch house workers dispute which i think this has a lot of parallels with really bring home um how endemic the low pay crisis is in britain now um but by somewhat anecdotal contrast when, when i worked in this type of industry about 10 years ago as a bar worker um, if you were to speak to me and my colleagues about the issues that most animated us or that we we're most concerned about I don't think many of us would have said pay because, you know, I mean, we, we knew that we were low paid, but we didn't feel our, our kind of our pay to be at to be at kind of crisis point. Um, you know, we would have been more concerned about hours, breaks, how we were treated by our bosses, um, etc. Now, those are issues and demands in this dispute as well. But it's clear that the £10 an hour is a headline demand and that's a headline demand for a reason. And I think that's an indication of how sharply the, the cost of living and, and particularly the cost of things like rent, especially in the south of England, um, how, how sharply they've gone up and, and how badly pay has stagnated. Um, so, you, you know, you're seeing 
this strike, the pitch house worker strike in, in a kind of growing pattern of um, strikes of precariously employed or semi-precariously employed, predominantly young workers who simply cannot afford to live um, mm. because because of the amount of money they're paying. And, and I guess the living wage, well, you know, in, in the pitch house dispute, it's the living wage, isn't it? Um, that's become, that's got on the agenda more over the last few years uh-huh. as a result of various campaigning activity from various groups, including the trade union movement. Um, and the £10 minimum, I suppose, is on the agenda more as well because it was Labour Party policy mm-hmm. in the general election. So all these things are kind of related. Mm. And there is a... Yeah, you can't... You Everyone in the country will recognise now that there's a that there's a problem with pay. More or less, every, everyone thinks they're low-paid, even people who are earning, you know, twice as much as a McDonald's worker might be earning. Um, and it it does seem a bit similar to the fifteen dollar campaign in in America, in that the headlines for that fifteen dollars in a union. Yeah. But when you look into the stuff that the fifteen dollar campaign does, it does tackle all this other stuff as yeah, well. Yeah, the working conditions, the the sort of petty power relationships in these workplaces and the and the and the bullying and all of that um but yeah on a, on a on a societal level i think there's a real there's a real resonance now when you talk about low pay i think that's definitely true but at the same time it's kind of important to acknowledge that this isn't just the strike this isn't a strike that's just about an economic demand around wages you know you get a real sense from that interview that um it's about kind of both these things, isn't it? It's about the demand for a £10 an hour wage, but it's also about issues that are in some ways kind of more fundamental about sort of human dignity, yeah. you know, as, as uh, human dignity in the workplace. This, you know, the situation Steve describes in terms of the culture of sexual harassment and management bullying are just really like grotesque and it's, and it's obscene to think that this is going on, you know, on, on every high street in the country potentially. Um, and, and a workplace culture like that can can lead to you as a worker feeling incredibly powerless because you're just sort of treated like dirt and it can be incredibly dehumanising, especially when it has a sort of gendered sexist element, as it clearly does here. But conversely, fighting back against it and reclaiming your dignity and your, huma- and your humanity is, you know, in a way, the most empowering thing you can do. And I know that might sound like a grandiose way to talk about what is still a very embryonic industrial dispute, but... You know, I think it. I think it can have that character, and, and any struggle of workers in that kind of workplace, working under those kind of conditions, who do fight back, potentially does have that character. Yeah, and and so many people, I suppose people our age, but but generally, have, will have worked in similar jobs enough to empathise with with that stuff. They will have experienced or witnessed at least those sort of things going on in the workplace. Um, so uh, a kind of second like topic header or, or, or discussion point that I kind of wanted to throw in is um, kind of looking at what might what we might slightly jargonistically call the kind of subjective organisational element um, involved here. Um, and I just wanted to sort of illustrate or um, suggest some 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 potential areas for discussion around that by um, referring to a. Um, a historical example from from slightly more recent history from from this country which i think it's important to talk about because it's not hugely well known and and it's an important kind of precursor to what's going on now so although the 4th of september strike um, will be the first official strike of mcdonald's workers in this country it's not the first time um mcdonald's workers in britain have attempted to organize um, and not not even the first time they would have taken industrial action so in the early 2000s uh, a group of McDonald's workers in Glasgow, uh, some of whom were on a kind of a narco-syndicalist wavelength uh, politically, set up a network called McDonald's Workers Resistance, MWR, that produced bulletins and other agitational literature. Um, now, I think it was a very impressive undertaking in a lot of ways, and it deserves to be um, better known than it is. So I'd encourage people to check out the collection of material from MWR that's online at Libcom. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I, which we'll, I... we'll link to in the episode description. I, I love anarcho-syndicalism and I've never heard of it. So, uh. <laughs> um, well, we can, we can all learn something. So in, two, in October 2002, um, MWR um, called what, what they called an international strike. Um, and it was just a sort of 
just to sort of, under, you know, it was something that they undertook. They said, we want to have an international strike of McDonald's workers. They just sort of called for it in a, in a, in a, in a sort of voluntaristic way. Um, and it resulted in, in a whole range of actions taking place, ranging from, uh, you know, a narco-syndicalist activist sort of picketing McDonald's restaurants from the outside through to, in a few places, um, unofficial walkouts, partial stoppages, um, industrial sabotage by McDonald's workers themselves, a- including in a small number of stores in the UK. So there were some... So the pe- they, people did do things in other countries as people well? People did do things in other countries. Um, again, go go to Libcom. It's all, it's all kind mm-hmm. of archived there. Um, and, and there were... Um, you know, according to the documentation, at least it's sort of before, slightly before my um, my time in the labour movement. Although is it? I don't know. Two thousand and two, probably not. Um, but I, you know, I wasn't aware of it while it was happening. Let's say um, so. I've only learned about it retrospectively. Um, but according to the documentation that's that's up there, um, you know, there were stoppages, there were kind of walkouts, of you know, partial walkouts and stoppages in stores in the UK. Um, now, MWR didn't, as far as I know, have any formal organisational links to any trade union and the network didn't last. Um, I do know that the Bakers Union does have members in McDonald's stores in Glasgow, so it would be interesting to know if there's any kind of continuity with or awareness of the MWR experience amongst Bakers Union members in McDonald's in Glasgow now. Um, I don't know for sure why it didn't last, but my guess would be that the workers at the centre of it kind of just moved on. And without having established more permanent formal organisational structures, there was just no real basis for any organisational continuity. That's, um, that's a real problem in a lot of these industries, I think, as, as well, as well is, is like s- simply the turnover of, of staff in a given workplace. And I think that's where a lot of the the attitude that... I mean, you do get this attitude, although it's not often explicitly said, but the attitude in the labour movement that it's impossible to organise workplaces like this, I think it largely comes from that idea of like, oh, no one's going to be working there for that long, are they? They're they just going to, they want to go and get a better job in six months, 12 months. But then obviously a lot of people do that. Mm-hmm. Then obviously a lot of people do stay in, that, in, in jobs for a long time. Um, particularly in the bar industry, you tend to have a kind of... Um, a lot of bar chains will sort of identify people that they want to push up the managerial ladder. Yeah. But of course, there's always more people on the books than are going to become managers. So you do have this sort of split in the workforce between people who are sort of in it for the long haul, wanting a career in the in the industry, and then a sort of very very high turnover of other staff, which which is an organisational problem, I think. Um, I mean, Kelly brought this up, didn't she, when we were when we were talking about the picture house dispute, and um, I think it's certainly true for the picture house dispute that actually the vast majority of people, of course, you get some of those that kind of transient. I'm just sort of here as a stopgap for a couple of months, but actually there are a lot of people working in the picture house for that is their professional life. That's that's and they're they're looking after families and they don't really have any plans to move on, and I wonder how much of that this idea of it being like transient transient workplaces is actually overplayed mm. especially in more recent years where mm. you are much less likely to walk out of a job yeah, because yeah. there are just fewer jobs on the ground so it would be interesting to see how much that has changed since like the kind of the early noughties for instance yeah yeah and also like i think another thing that that i was thinking about when you were talking daniel is it's quite similar to to sort of conversations that certainly i've had with people in this room before about the idea of and as much as it's commendable and you want to say like, yes, well done, the idea of trying to run before you can walk. So it's, it's very much like the idea of like calling for a general strike now, for instance, when there for a long time there was barely any kind of like coherent left at all. Um, the idea that you would just go, OK, all, all of the McDonald's now are going on strike is the groundwork hasn't been laid. It's not there. You have there's no substitute for the painstaking work of of laying ground. Mm. I think that's right, and I, and, I, and I think um, you know, and that's that's not to sort of um, gainsay or do down the efforts of the kind of MWR people or, or their or their sort of strategic ambition in in, in what they're doing, but. I think you are right that foundations do have to be laid. And that doesn't mean proceeding in a sort of cautious or inambitious way. Um, but, you know, it does mean um, 
trying to build some foundations. And I think that what you've got now with the role that the BFAWU are playing is a sort of, you know, a subjective element in 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 the picture that's that's prepared to kind of play that role and, and kind of provi- provide that foundation. Now, I, I, I'm not an anarcho syndicalist, but but I'm not I'm not I'm not making that point particularly to sort of gainsay you know the anarcho-syndicalist model of organizing or to sort of boost a more mainstream model of organizing but i do think it's clear that for you know for workers struggle to be successful um and and or, or rather no that's not quite right for for, for workers struggle to be more than a brief flare let's say um you know we do need proper organization uh, and i think the bakers union took a conscious decision a few years ago learning from the American and, and, and the New Zealand models particularly to make a sort of orientation towards these industries and to resource organising campaigns within them. Ed, I think, I think you wanted to talk a little bit about the experience of Unite in New Zealand, um, no, no relation to the union of the same name in this country, by the way, and, and how that and, and, and how they kind of decided to, to, to sort of take on that, that role of being, being that organisational element. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so I, I mentioned it briefly in the intro, the, the the stuff that happened in New Zealand about a decade ago. Uh, it's interesting because it kind of is, I guess, in a way, it kind of was a voluntaristic thing. Yeah, it, was. it was. The, the yeah. people who the people who who drove it simply de- decided to do it, that it would be a good, worthwhile thing for socialist activists to do in the industrial landscape to go into fast food workplaces and, and just organise them. Um and again, that was like like Ellie mentioned. It was it was like painstaking work. They they were helped a bit by the fact that um, uh, labour law in New Zealand, at least then, was better than it is here. So uh, full time union organisers could go into a workplace. They had legal immunity going into a workplace, talking to people, uh, making a fuss. Whereas here, obviously, if you don't have recognition with a particular employer, you know you people will just chug you out of a place. You know. Um, they managed to get to a point where I think I think they got they ended up getting contracts with pretty much every major fast food chain. Yeah, in New well, Zealand. well the, the the big victory that the supersize my pay dispute won was getting um, McDonald's and a number of other like big employers in the sector to scrap the youth rates of the minimum wage, um, which is obviously still an issue here. You know, we've still got a. And it's, a, a, I mean, age discriminatory kind of wage system. Yeah, so. and, a, and an incredibly significant percentage of those workforces is, Absolutely, is young yeah. people. Um, and interestingly enough, years down the line, um, so, you know, there, there exists a country in, in the world where a trade union goes into negotiating meetings with the managements of, of these big fast food chains that, you know, it's not it, you, it's not impossible because someone's done it mm. somewhere else, you know. Um Years down the line, they've now begun to have political success off the back of their industrial success because of last year or the year before, um, they managed to get the laws around zero hours contracts changed in New Zealand under essentially a, a centre-right government, you know, not even a, not like a Labour Party government, but because they'd had, I suppose, built up enough industrial power, began to sort of spill over into the political arena and I guess had that issue on the agenda in a way that, you know, it's on the agenda in this country, I suppose, but but there isn't a sort of force strong enough to sure, well, I mean, make that change politically, you know. That's, that's a kind of interesting parallel as well, because part of the reason that Unite in New Zealand were able to intervene politically and, and have been able to um, win some serious political change um, is because some of the people who kind of founded that union and who continue to be quite significant in its leadership, um, people like Matt McCartan and Mike Treen, are people with long backgrounds in kind of socialist and labour movement politics in New Zealand. Um, uh, and there is a parallel, I think, with what the Bakers Union are doing here because they've used their affiliation, the Bakers Union have used their affiliation to labour, I think, very effectively, getting uh, Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell to sort of publicly sort of amplify the dispute broadcast their support for it and given the way Labour's manifesto was able to shape political discourse around issues like low pay and zero hours contracts I think that's that's had a a really fantastic impact and it's got in the national press a lot 
And it's worth saying as well that there, there appeared to be a bit of a climb down from McDonald's even the last week. Yeah. Um, even before the strike took place so on the question of guaranteed hours. Yeah, we, well, we should, we should mention that actually. I mean, so last year McDonald's committed to um, uh, ending zero hours contracts, uh, but it was just a sort of abstract commitment. And now in the in the days leading up to the strike, since the strike ballot result came back, they've said, okay, we're going to enact that by the end of the year. So they've now made a firm commitment um, un- un- under pressure from, you know, from under the, two stores. Yeah, indeed. So out he, of how many hundred, you know. So yeah, they'll be absolutely brought to their knees when the strike spreads. So um, maybe just to kind of move on for perhaps one final sort of point of discussion um, uh, in response to to the interview um, around the question of the position that these industries and these workplaces occupy in the sort of broader tapestry of. Uh, uh, of, of capitalist economic functioning. I'm not sure tapestry is quite... That's probably not quite the right The beautiful metaphor. tapestry of capitalism. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, what, I don't know, what would you say? The grid? What would you say is a more appropriate metaphor? The grid metaphor? is a bit too formulated. It's not as ordered as that, It's not it? as ordered as no, that, no. No, um, we'll, we'll come back to it. We'll come back to it. Okay, so within... Uh, so tweet us with your suggestions. <laughs> uh, so fast food and service sector workplaces and, and their kind of... Um, position within within the wider capitalist economy. I was talking recently to um, a comrade who was, if not dismissive, then I think it's fair to say a little bit kind of sniffy about fast food worker struggles on the basis that, as they put it, they're not in a kind of strategically significant industry that can really throw a spanner in the gears of, of capitalist economic functioning. When you say that, you, you mean something like transport? Yeah, so this comrade was talking about, like, you know, uh, logist- like distribution and logistics, transport, healthcare, education, um, the, the kind of industries where if there were sort of mass strikes in these industries, they'd really bring the economy to its knees. And they weren't, they weren't like, hostile to fast food, fast food worker struggles by any means, but they were, they were kind of saying, well, you know, the left shouldn't get, like, too caught up in this stuff because we really need to be orienting to these more like strategically significant industries and I thought we might we might discuss that here because because that seems to me a kind of wrong way of looking at these things especially because I think these strikes have a a significance way beyond their immediate economic impact so firstly like the picture house strike it's a strike that tells young workers in low-paid service sector zero hours jobs that yes you you can organize trade unions industrial action they are for you they're not just for you know um southern rail guards or 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 the more prominent disputes in arguably more traditional and perhaps more strategic industries that that um might appear more more prominently in the media although as you say this this strike has kind of captured the media narrative to um to a pretty significant yeah, degree, which I think is because it's McDonald's. Probably, yeah, I sure. And and the other thing is, it's, it's a bit of a it's, it's a bit of a false dichotomy. Even thinking about it, even on the level of the individual, because it's eminently possible, if not probable, that a young worker in a service industry workplace will, at some point, yes, not very far in the future, will get a job in a in a more strategic in, or a more unionized workplace. You know, and whatever they've learned industrially on the trade union side in McDonald's Mm. would be invaluable taking that into a, into a a place where the unions are perhaps a bit more set in their ways and a bit more business as usual. So it's, it's worth engaging with surely just for that reason. That's a really important point. Also, I think that there's something to be said as well for like, they're not just taking on an employer and potentially winning. I think there's something said about, taking on a giant and Mm. potentially winning, right? So, I mean, I think people have a a tendency to overestimate their enemies. Um, And kind of the idea of going up against something like McDonald's, right, is is so daunting. It's so incredibly... This is a huge multinational corporation. But actually, strikes like this show that McDonald's is just the workplace like any other workplace and it wouldn't function without workers. It doesn't matter how many billions they have, how many fancy lawyers they have, they don't function without workers. Yeah, That's a really important lesson to take from yeah. this. And that actually with dedication, uh, hard work and just taking it one store at a time, it is possible to take down giants. Yeah, It's also worth saying as well that we should mention that McDonald's is largely a franchise business. So even though it's a big, giant, multinational corporation, the stores themselves are run 
by sort of petty capitalists as, as franchises. And uh, I remember a few months ago, a Baker's Union uh, guy saying to me that uh, McDonald's makes more money as basically a real estate business than it does from selling burgers. Because mm. mm. what it's doing is rent is buying up its store space and then renting it out to these smaller smaller sort of uh, 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 shop owners, right? Mm. So that you can see where sort of cracks in this big and apparently unassailable facade could, could easily start to develop, you know? Um, and I think another point worth making as well about the strategic industries thing is I, I understand the the actual point the comrade was making, but also you have to think about what do you mean by strategy and what do you mean by strategic industries? So, for instance, I think that sort of fast food strikes are a very good bridge between something that it tends to be more in the popular consciousness, which is um, the... Uh, the kind the idea of anti globalization and the a lot of anti corporate yeah anti corporate yeah, greed, yeah. greed right which I don't want to do that stuff down because actually the the people who are really behind that I think your heart's in the right place that's, um, that's a, like a gateway drug to it's the gateway drug yes yeah. <laughs> exactly but what it's sorely lacking is a real kind of class analysis and a and a, a kind of strategy for for what to do and what these strikes show is that. Actually, yet yeah, they're the link between um, going. Okay, I think Coke might be evil, and then actually, how do you how do you then deal with that on the it. ground? How do you yeah? How do you deal with that on the ground? Um, and I, th- I think that's really important. And I think that most people don't start by thinking about. As Daniel said, it's a gateway drug. Most people don't start by thinking about strategic key industries that are going to take the government down. They start by thinking, oh my god, Coke shouldn't be poisoning water supplies. Yeah, and things yeah, like well, that. Yeah, McDonald's shouldn't be chopping down the rainforest to graze its cattle or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, yeah definitely. And um, maybe just kind of one one point in in summary. Then, like, I, th- I think all of that's absolutely true. But even on this argument's kind of own terms I don't think these workplaces and industries are that far removed from um, from industries and workplaces that are in fact profoundly strategic in the modern economy so food retail and supermarket distribution and logistics which are industries where the work is characterised by exactly the same kind of d- dynamics and features that, that work at McDonald's is um, you know those industries are like absolutely arterial to modern capitalist functioning and in the british context at least warehouses and distribution centers are arguably the kind of mills and factories of the 21st century so it's not it's not at all inconceivable to me that strikes at an employer like mcdonald's could inspire the efforts of workers at an employer like amazon or tesco or their logistics subcontract- subcontractors so you know we shouldn't we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves here but we shouldn't limit our horizons either um, so now we're going to hand over to Professor Edmund yeah, Mostel <laughs> for, for our history session. We're going to be looking at the 1912 New York waiters' strike. So away, Ed. If uh, if it's possible to just become a professor just by people repeating it, <laughs> you, know, you know, like when Paul Nuttall pretended to. <laughs> yeah, people say that academia is you know really precarious industry and it's really difficult to get permanent work. But you've beca- since we started this podcast, you've become a professor just by us kind of calling you one. So yeah, yeah, but how I, hard can it I, be? Uh, I haven't been paid. <laughs> so. On the 7th of May 1912, more than 100 workers walked out of the Belmont Hotel on 42nd Street in Manhattan in New York. Uh, the demands were for $10 a week wage for waiters and $7 for busboys, as well as a series of demands, as we spoke about in relation to the McDonald's strike, that weren't directly about pay, but were about the awful working conditions that they faced. Um, they asked for at least one guaranteed day off a week, because many of them only had one day off every two weeks. Uh, and the abolition of fines for minor disciplinary infractions. Mm. Um, Hotel workers were incredibly poorly paid, often worked seven days a week, as many as 72 hours in a week. And they often had to pay the head waiter, or the sort of foreman figure in their line of work, a kickback fee just to be brought back in on the job the next day or the next week. So you talk about casualised work, imagine how casualised it is where you actually have to pay someone to, yeah. to be brought in onto a shift. Um, 
a waiter nominally earning about $30 a month might take home less than half of that after all the fines and deductions. Um, if you worked in a, a really big posh hotel and you had to waiter at the banquets, you often had to buy your own clothes. And obviously if you're a waiter on $30 a week, that's gonna take up most of your income just buying buying a white tie or whatever you have to waiter in. Um, Big hotels like the Astor also imposed what they called yellow dog contracts. Another great example of labour movement terminology being better 100 years ago <laughs> than it is today. The yellow dog contracts, uh, where workers had to swear that they would not join a union. Um, so, beginning at one hotel, or a handful of hotels in, in Manhattan, the strike rapidly spread to some of the most iconic hotels and restaurants of Manhattan's gilded age, the Waldorf, the Plaza... Uh, Delmonico's restaurant and perhaps as many as 18,000 workers joined the strike in the first two weeks it's important as well although we've titled it the waiter's strike to say that it was uh, there, there were many in the hotels there were many different grades of worker who, who were involved including maids cleaners you know uh, all, all sorts of all sorts of people um, Joseph Elster who was an organiser of the International Hotel Workers Union told a public rally this is not the fight of the waiters alone. It is also the fight of the cooks, the chambermaids, and every man or woman employed in or about a hotel. So a leaflet that was given out by hotel workers and supporters outside the hotels and restaurants affected uh, read as follows. What is it that forced the cooks, the men who prepared the dainty and expensive dishes, to quit their jobs and come out on strike? What forced the waiters in the fine hotels and exclusive clubs to rebel? because they were overworked, underfed, and not sufficiently paid. Do you realise that these cooks in the fine hotels do not get decent food? We want the help of the public in general in this, our fight for decent working conditions, that we may live like men, support our families, and rear our children. In particular, we ask the workers to support us. Do not play the part of a traitor. Stand by us in this fight, help us win, let us become part of organised labour, fighting for better conditions. So you can see from that, there's a lot of things in there, um, including a desire to be sort of taken seriously as part of the labour movement. Uh, and it's interesting that we're talking about kind of uh, the, the labour movement going into new industries, new workplaces, mm. but this is, a, this is a leaflet from, you know, over 100 years ago. So the union that organised this strike was a section of the Industrial Workers of the World who were an industrial unionist organisation, as we talked about in uh, one of our previous episodes. And... Um, some workers moved into the IWW, um, abandoning an existing hotel workers union that they didn't think was fit for purpose. Um, the two most prominent IWW organisers um, in this dispute were Joseph Etter, um, who was also around the uh, Patterson strike that happened in the same year. Mm -hmm. um, the IWW was doing a lot of stuff um, on the East Coast at, at this time. Um, and Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who was just 23 years old at the time. Absolute legend. And, yeah, I mean, she, she got absolutely everywhere. She's an incredibly effective uh, labour organiser. There's, there's a fantastic, very patronising uh, newspaper article uh, that our researcher Holly came across um, expressing horror and surprise that the real voice behind these works <laughs> is a 23-year-old woman. Um, <laughs> That's interesting as well, that article, because in it she, she's reported uh, saying to a meeting of strikers, um, she's basically uh, adopting an anti-tip policy. And this mm. is something that comes up again and again with uh, food service workers throughout history, um, is they actually advocate for the, for the abolition of tipping. Mm. Mm. Because the idea is if you're earning a living wage, it shouldn't be it necessary, shouldn't. it's demeaning. Um, and uh, one of the first things uh, waiters in Barcelona did during the Spanish Revolution in the 30s was abolish the practice of tipping. It was like one of the first things that they did. Um, so the strike went on for uh, about five or six weeks. It became pretty violent as the New York police attempted to clear picket lines. Um, at one point, a group of waiters attempted to storm the Waldorf Astoria, where at the exact moment where a luxury banquet was being held for visiting German naval officers... Um, police sort of dragged them out of the hotel, sort of threw them out into the street, beat them up a little bit. Uh, it appears as though police intimidation was one of the big factors in sort of driving a lot of people back to work. Um, the IWW tried to broaden the strike to include all workers in the industry. 
uh, but the bosses were still able to play people off against each other. So the, the Wobblies approached, um, excuse the antiquated term, but the, the Coloured Waiters Association, which was a, a union of black workers, um, to try and form an alliance with them because the bosses were very consciously bringing in African-American workers to, to break the strike. Um, after about six weeks, the strike, most of the, most of the strikers had drifted back to work. Um, the immediate gains they made were pretty minimal, except in some hotels which met some of their demands. But it was the, the reason I suppose to talk about this dispute, one of the reasons too, is, is it, this was the first shot in a long war to organize hotels in America which went on for decades and decades and is still going on, right? Mm. So there are even recently uh, workers in Trump's, Donald Trump's mm. hotel chain have, have been have been doing stuff, you know. But from the 30s onwards, you know, there, were, there were a number of waiter strikes in the, and hotel worker strikes in the following years. From the 30s onwards, things began to shift a little bit. Uh, unions began to sign contracts with hotel chains. Um, many major hotel chains in the US now are organised by... Um, Unions like Unite Here, um, which is the old hotel and restaurant employees union. Um, so I guess the point is is that we're talking about, as I say, workplaces, industries that, that appear to be alien terrain to the labour movement now. But other parts of the world, other times, unions have gone into these places mm. and organised them. And you might lose a strike even. I mean, th- that strike was pretty heroic, but you can't. I can't sit here and tell you that it was a great victory because it wasn't. But it was the first battle in a long war to, to get unions into the hotel industry in America, which ultimately was successful, or at least as successful as anything else that, <laughs> you know, that, that happened. So I just wanted to, yeah, maybe we could chat a bit about it's not directly the same sort of industry necessarily. I mean, we could have put that in an episode alongside talking about hotel workers now because mm. obviously Unite in, in Britain at the moment are doing a lot with hotel workers. Um, but for the parallels that I've just sort of talked about, I think it, it kind of makes sense to talk about it alongside the McDonald's dispute. Um, but I don't know if you guys have any thoughts just on what you've just heard. or. Well, I think... One thing that that you kind of mentioned that I think kind of bears reiterating, and it's and it's part of this debate in the labour movement, you know, about the kind of jobs or industries that are really hard to organise, and you know, there's sort of a okay, like what I'm going to say is a bit of a kind of caricature of the debate, but you know, a debate that maybe superficially appears to be between more staid kind of orthodox elements of of the more traditional established labor movement who want to focus on existing kind of core industries like the public sector education and so on where there's relatively high union density and then smaller sort of independent unions like the UVW and the IWGB um, and the IWW where they kind of still exist as a sort of industrial presence saying no you know we need to sort of face outwards to these other types of industry and I think something that some, some, something that, that, that a dispute like this shows us is that actually there, there really there really isn't a single industry or type of work within the economy where there's no history of workers organizing yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so very often it's it's less a case of you know trying to do something like totally new and and, and break out of um, a sort of permanently established orthodoxy into like completely new terrain but rather getting back to a kind of, you know, to, to, to an old new, if you like. Yeah. Um, and, you know, historically, you know, this, this was a strike organised by the IWW and it was a much more um, kind of significant and sort of industrially rooted presence than it is now. And it's true that in the past, sometimes worker struggles in these industries have been organised by... Um, sort of unions or workers organizations that broadly come from a syndicalist tradition and you know and there's a debate to be had there about those models of organization and how they relate to kind of wider working class and socialist politics um which you know we certainly don't have time to get into now but but <laughs> tune into episodes seven eight nine <laughs> ten and eleven for that one but but what but what we can learn from this is that there's there's no that there is no entirely new terrain um 
and that often when we're having a debate that sort of presents that, that, that kind of lo- looks superficially where some people are arguing for doing something that's really new actually the element of novelty can kind of obscure more than it clarifies and we can go back in our movement's history and, and say okay well look workers in these types of industries and these types of jobs have organised before how have they done it what what tactics were adopted what strategies were pursued um, etc etc um, which is you know humbly uh, hopefully this podcast can kind of contribute to refreshing some of that history I think that's sort of one of the things that's like without being too downbeat about everything that's sort of one of the things that's so depressing about the left isn't it it's not even just that there's no industrial struggle that's new it's also that there's no debate that's new <laughs> like we sort of keep having not comp- that's not completely true that's a kind of again a caricature but we keep having a lot of the same debates and also sort of forgetting our history so I think what you're saying is like really really important of just of, of remembering our history as a class um and as socialists and and things like that I think yeah I mean I I'm not a fan of this kind of like sometimes you know a, a lot of the way that that uh, history is presented in a, in a lot of um, tra- traditionally in the in the left and in the trade union movement is um, such and such a thing happened. The lessons of today, the lessons for today are X Y Z. Like I'm not a really yeah, big fan of that. It's, it's it? very simple, oversimplified, and and, and whatever. Um, I don't I don't think it I don't think it's depressing particularly that that, that people have don't know the history or have forgotten it or whatever because I don't think there was necessarily ever a golden time where like every active trade unionist Mm. was was completely aware of the sort of hand of history on their shoulder as as Tony Blair would have said do do you know what I mean I I, I think that's I bet the uh, I bet the uh, Minneapolis Teamsters in 1934 were uh, were aware of the hand of history we need to we need to get like a swear job every time Dan brings up the Minneapolis Teamsters strike he has to pay his attention in a a year we'll have a building on 47 (laughs) I mean yeah so so, I mean the, the and the IWW is an interesting case because the the golden era of the IWW organising these like big mass militant strikes in the states is actually a pretty short mm. space of time. You're talking not much longer than ten years. Yeah. Um, and the IWW at the end of the First World War was smashed to pieces by essentially by state repression. Um, but its kind of legacy and the way that people in the movement are sort of aware of it is actually quite impressive for an organisation that was only really coherently around for a very short period of time. Part, partly that is for, through the influence of uh, sort of romantic figures like Joe Hill or whatever, um, the songs and the things mm. that people know about the Wobblies. But I think it is also about the fact that they went into so many of these industries yeah. and were the kind of the kind of founding fathers of, of the trade union movement across a lot of different well, industries. Well, I think, I think it... that very much comes back to the discussion we were having earlier about you know again to deploy the sort of jargonistic formulation that the sort of subjective organizational element you know that's what was that's one of many things that was so impressive about that kind of generation of wobbly organizers and and the culture that they built up in that union is that they would they were just prepared to kind of go and do it and like be that organizational element provide that organizational framework build those foundations um and I guess, you know, whatever you think about the sort of politics of the IWW, I think we should be inspired by that. And I think the lesson for activists today, whatever union you're in, um, is to fight for your union to become the kind of union that does that, to become the kind of union that's prepared to look for opportunities to organise and, to, and, and to, to build struggles. Um, you know, that there's, a, there's a good phrase, which I think, really epitomizes this that i think it was i've i've heard it i've heard it used to refer to kind of individual union reps but but you could you can think about it in terms of whole unions that the role of a union is to start fires not to find ways of putting them out yeah and you, you know the iww was a union that looked for ways to start fires sometimes literally sometimes <laughs> literally and you know the baker's union has done that in this context they've you know they've they've taken a decision to orient to a particular kind of sector and have looked for a way to kind of start a fire um, yeah, yeah. in terms of a dispute and a struggle. And, and, you know, whatever union you're in, whatever whatever industry you work in, whatever union you're in, 
you should fight for your union to become a union that looks for ways to start fires. Yeah. One of the best things about the um, the some of the social media output from the bakers around the McDonald's campaign is the language they've adopted is is basically this language of like, this is happening, we're doing it, we're we're already winning victories, yeah. we're already organising stores, you know, and it's and it's such a refreshing change from the sort of. Uh, a lot of the language of kind of like official trade union press releases about negotiations and this and that and whatever, you know, and, and uh, oh, we're very disappointed in the employers about that they haven't <laughs> decided to meet us halfway on this issue. Like, like absolutely deadening, uninspiring yes. sort of language. Put, put that, that, you know? That's exactly putting fires out, isn't it? Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a perfect um, encapsulation of the difference. Um, the Baker's Union's use of social media is actually one of the things that Steve talks about in the second half of the interview. So that's a pretty good segue um, to kind of wrap up the historical uh, discussion. Thanks for the presentation, Ed. Um, and we'll return now to the second half of our interview with McDonald's worker, um, strike organiser and BFAWU activist Steve, um, who spoke to us about the upcoming McStrike. Um, how, how consciously um, are you and your colleagues looking to the experiences of fast food workers in America and New Zealand um, as a kind of model for the type of campaign you're planning to run? I mean, we, we look at the states specifically. A lot of the American organisers have come over and helped us um, sort of learn their techniques and things like that, you know, like uh, like finding out on people's issues rather than putting our own onto them and things like that. Um, but, um, but yeah, we think that's, that's where we, it's mostly mostly come from. It's been in the states. I mean, the things they've done in the states is absolutely fantastic. You know, I mean, the last over the last five years since they've been organising in the states, they've pulled sixty four billion dollars um, from these businesses and give them all to the workers. Um, so that, you know, it's a hell of a, lot of, a hell of a lot of money. Two million workers. Now have been involved with the campaign in some some level uh, in America, which is quite interesting. But yeah, the, the state is where we've, we've been looking at the most because the, the stuff they've done over there is is phenomenal. I mean, they've done a lot of great stuff in New Zealand, but a lot of that has been um, due to the tie-in with uh, parliamentary politics that they've got. Um, so they've they've managed to win a lot of things through that. But in the states, they haven't got that, so it's just fighting from the bottom. Like at the moment, at the moment. We don't have that until until Jeremy's in number one. You know, we're uh, <laughs> is you know Theresa May is never going to give us a ten pound an hour minimum wage issue. Well, and and, yeah, and unless she's unless she's forced to by a you know a mass strike wave of uh, exactly. service sector workers. Um, can, can I ask can I ask a question about um, some of the kind of challenges you faced uh, in organising? Uh, in, in the workplace, I mean, you've me- you've mentioned the kind of management culture, which has presumably been a bit of a, a bit of an obstacle. But did you encounter any challenges from your fellow workers in terms of just an unfamiliarity with what trade unionism is? And um, did you have to kind of like to what extent were you sort of starting from scratch when when yourself or, or the colleagues who are in the store before you began organising? Absolutely. I mean, a lot of these these workers have never, uh, obviously, never been in a union before. I've never been on strike before. I've been in I've been in the Baker's Union for a couple of years now, but I've never been on strike. Um, so it's, it's brand new to everybody. Um, what what we do is when on our initial conversations with workers, we always ask them what they what a union is. Um, ask them what it is. Uh, and you get a right wide range of answers from something to do with the European Union, most <laughs> common one. Um, but yeah, but people think some very odd things. Um, but it's, our point is we always try to explain to them that it's a union. This is our exact what we say. Our union is workers like you coming together to use their strength in numbers to make change so they can't get on their own. Because that's what it's all about. A union isn't a... Uh, an outside force that comes in and looks after you. It's not a way of getting discounts on your own day, um, which some unions offer. You know, it's 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 is about people coming together in their workplace to make change. Um, and I think that that by that very basic sentence, as as sort of a lot of people are like, oh yeah, that's that makes sense because especially as they can see that that is what we're doing. Uh, if if you were giving advice to you know, an individual worker or a small number of workers in a workplace like yours, be it, you know, a fast food workplace, a coffee shop, a high street clothing store, what, what, whatever it is, a kind of low, low wage service sector workplace. If you were giving advice to, to a worker who wants to start the process of organising, what would you say to them? What's the first thing they should do? How do you go about 
kind of starting that starting that process? Well, the first thing they, they should do is try to find out what uh, is to try and bring some of the workers together outside of work um, for a social, you know, go for a beer or go for a coffee or whatever, and then try and find out what issues you've got together and then think of a way of, that you can overcome it. Um, yeah, that's it's basically, basically it. I mean, of course, get in touch with your perspective. The union responsible for your section, so it's fast food. It's likely going to be the Baker's Union, or, or I mean, a lot of them. I mean, we've we've been handed contacts through the GMB before. Who the GMB have uh, had people contact them. They've worked in McDonald's and like, oh, we want to join the union. The GMB have gone, well, it's the Baker's. And, you know, where the specific area is the Baker's. So go go over there. So get you know get in touch with your union or a, a union, any union. Uh, and yeah, start off start off that way. Get get workers together. Find out what your issues are you'll likely find they're all the same uh, and then start coming together to a nap back. Uh, what can other workers you know, people in the wider labour movement do to support your um, burgeoning dispute um, obviously when you go on strike presumably there'll be picket lines that people can come and support but um, outside of that what are the best things people can do to build solidarity with your struggle uh, well, there's an international day of action on the 4th of September uh, we're, putting a, we're, we're putting a call out uh, for people to come join us on our picket line picket line location is yet to be decided um, but we have got some we've got a few plans but they're not being finalised yet but the Baker's Union will be putting a call out soon about that um, the other thing you do is social media absolutely social media uh, get on tweets uh, get on Twitter <laughs> send out your tweets um, and, uh, hashtag fast food rights get spread the message out social media we nearly won an election to social media let's win unions through it as well uh, so once again, that was Steve, a McDonald's worker in Cambridge and an activist with the BFAWU um, involved in organising the forthcoming strike. And that's due to take place on Monday, the 4th of September. Uh, for more information on that dispute, follow at BFAWU1, the digit one, um, and the hashtag McStrike on Twitter. And get involved with the Hungry for Justice campaign to support fast food worker struggles, which you can check out uh, online at fastfoodrights.wordpress.com. Dot com. Um, that's about it for this time. Um, just a few kind of announcements and shout outs before we conclude. Um, we wanted to thank everybody who contributed to the discussion on our Facebook page um, around our last episode, which was about portrayals of unions on screen. We asked people to um, sort of volunteer their, their like favorite portrayals of unions in TV and film. We got some really excellent responses um, from a whole bunch of people. Uh, we're just going through some of them now. Um, so there were some of the ones that we mentioned in the in the episode, like Pride. The quite a few people mentioned The Wire and Boys from the Black stuff. Um, Fist, starring Sylvester Stallone. Um, Norma Ray. Norma Ray. My favourite one was the A Team one. There's an and an episode of SpongeBob SquarePants where SpongeBob goes on strike. Yeah. And of course, he works in a fast food restaurant as well doesn't he absolutely so he would obviously be a hundred percent behind the mcdonald's strike um i think i think henry the the comrade who uh, pointed that out probably probably won't mind us referring to him by name he actually wrote a sort of um you know several years ago nothing to do with our episode wrote a sort of analysis of like a kind of political analysis of that episode of spongebob squarepants from a sort of working class point of view on his blog um so thanks to henry for drawing our attention to that for posting it up people should go on our Facebook page, find the link to that, um, go read Henry's blog. Um, thanks again to everyone who who, who contributed to that discussion. I um, hope you enjoyed that episode. Um, we also wanted to shout out a, uh, a kind of fellow labour movement podcast from, um, from America, um, the, the Smash Up Derby podcast or the Smash Up Derby podcast as it would be pronounced. Um, in the States there, um, some comrades were involved in the DSA, the, the Democratic Socialists of America, um, and, and in uh, the, the wider labor movement. Their podcast is, is really fantastic. Um, their, their latest episode is a, is a um, kind of retrospective looking back at the 1997 UPS workers' strike. And they were kind that of... That was a strategic industry. That was a, certainly, it was and, and remains a, a strategic industry and organized by the Teamsters Union as well. So relevant to our interests. Okay. Um, <laughs> They were they were kind enough to include us in a in a segment on their podcast called People Smarter Than Us, and they were very complimentary um, about the podcast. I think unjustifiably so. Um, we're definitely not smarter than them, but we wanted to thank them for mentioning us and recommend to all our listeners that um, you go and check out the Smash Up 
Derby slash Derby podcast as well, um, which is at um, smashuppodcast.com. I think that's about it for this episode. So it only remains for us to say thanks very much to Steve for um, uh, being our guest um, this month, talking about uh, the McDonald's strike. Um, Thanks to my co-hosts, Ed and Ellie, and our producer, Liam, and especially to our um, researcher, Holly, who dug up a load of really great material on the, the New York waiters strike. And quite a lot of other stuff on various interesting worker struggles in the kind of food service industry that we unfortunately weren't able to include, um, but may return to in a future episode. Um, Thanks again for listening. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, download us on iTunes, all that good stuff. And we'll see you on the picket lines. This month's episode of Labour Days was presented by Ed Mustell, Daniel Randall and Ellie Clark. As always, our producer has been Liam McNulty and our guest this month was McDonald's worker Steve. We've also had additional research provided by Holly Smith. Follow us on Twitter at Labour underscore days or alternatively you can find us on Facebook at Labour Days Podcast. Harry Potter and the episode of nothing. <laughs>